Welcome back. Serve the servants. Oh, no. Anyway, I'm going to be asking Google. I'm going to ask the Google about what's it called when the judge dismisses a case on a technicality. This sounds good. Mm. What is the legal term for dismissal of charges? Nola prosecute. A Latin phrase meaning will no longer prosecute or a variation on the same. It amounts to dismissal of charges by the prosecution. Some states like New York, for example, don't use the phrase. Rather, they simply use the term dismissal. What is a technicality in a criminal case? A legal technicality is a small but ultimately important detail of the law. For example, a robbery suspect might have his trial dismissed on a legal technicality if the arresting police officer neglected to show him a search warrant before searching his house. Um, <clears throat> what's another word? Charges being dropped, acquitted. Means you found not guilty by a court of law in a criminal trial. Dismissed meaning means the court or prosecutor has decided the charges. Charge against you should not go forward, terminating the case. No charges filed. Charges dropped means the prosecutor has declined to pursue the case. What does it mean to be really released on a technicality? It means guilt or innocence is irrelevant. Because of a technical, legal, or constitutional issue, police should not have been able to charge you. And therefore, prosecution should not have been able to bring you to trial. Released on a technicality. How about a, like many technicalities? What is considered a technicality? A technicality is a point, especially a legal one, that is based on a strict interpretation of the law or of a set of rules, but that may seem unimportant compared to a larger issue. The earlier verdict was overturned on a legal technicality. What is the term cleared of charges? To acquit someone is to clear the number of charges. Acquitting also has to do with how you carry or present yourself. If you're accused of a crime, then the best thing that can happen to you is being acquitted. That means you are cleared or exonerated of the charges. The defense lawyer wants to have his client acquitted. What, is this, uh, what does it mean to exonerate someone? Declare him not guilty of criminal charges. This word is pretty much only used in reference to proceedings in a court of law. A word with a similar meaning that might be familiar is acquit. What is a technical point in law? What does it mean to be cited and released? A procedure in California that involves writing a citation for 
alleged criminal activity without taking the accused person into police custody. Defendants are instead freed on the stipulation that they submit a written commitment to appear in court at a future date. Does cleared mean innocent? Having been found not to be guilty of doing something wrong. Okay. Let's go back up to this uh, article or whatever at the beginning. Um, a criminal law office of Stephen F. O'Meara. A criminal attorney explains why cases get dismissed on technicalities. 2018. Criminal attorneys are often asked about how cases get dismissed on technicalities. Typically, these technicalities after going to pack exclamation point and getting cases dismissed on technicalities. I'm going to start a new podcast. Hi there, welcome back. We're talking about getting cases dismissed on technicalities. Criminal attorneys are often asked about how cases get dismissed on technicalities. Typically, these technicalities are constitutional protections guaranteed to all people in the United States. When the government fails to comply with the Constitution and fails to afford people constitutional protections, evidence may be suppressed, and in some cases, in some situations, cases are dismissed because of that suppression of evidence, which is exactly what they should do. In criminal law, issues commonly referred to as technicalities involve six different areas of the law. These include... Oh... This is great. Hmm. I'm going to just take some notes here. Notes. Uh, here we go again. <laughs> I keep my visions to myself. I need to, um, keep my case law stuff in one area okay criminal law technicalities criminal law technicalities okay Commonly referred to as technicalities involve six different areas of the law. Six areas. Suppression due to lack of probable cause for the defendant's stop by the police.
due to lack of probable cause. Um, for the defendant stopped by the police. Suppression of defendant statements. What suppression of the prosecutor? The, the um, false evidence. False, mm, false reporting on us. The activity report. Suppression of defendant statements. Uh, suppression of improper search and seizures. Improper warrants as well as This post briefly discusses each of these. That's only four, though. These topics, as one might imagine, with constitutional issues, any particular set of facts requires additional in-depth analysis. <sighs> Criminal attorney A criminal attorney explained statements. You are requested and not permitted to leave. And additionally, questioning, also referred to as interrogation, just beginning about the allegations against you. Criminal attorney explained searches. You have the right under the Fourth Amendment to be free from unreasonable search and seizure. To be free from unreasonable search and seizure. Consequently, law enforcement may only search a person, your property, or your papers if probable cause exists supporting a belief evidence of a crime exists in the area searched. Consequently, law enforcement may only search property person papers if probable cause exists supporting a belief Evidence of a crime exists in the area searched.
Never give permission for the police to search your car or home. If there is reason for the search, the court must approve the police request first. When law enforcement seizes evidence, they must, so they're saying, like, never, yeah, must approve the police request first. Yeah. A criminal attorney explains seizures. When law enforcement, this is a uh, Steve O'Meara Law.com. See here. When law enforcement seizes evidence, they must do so in a legal manner. For example, if a warrant discussed below permits law enforcement access to your garage to search for a stolen car, law enforcement is not permitted to expand the search to seize the contents of your email account on your computer. Your email account does not and cannot include a stolen vehicle. Consequently, this exceeds the permissible bounds of the search. Seizures. And by the way, uh, 3124 lied, said they took before photos where? When law enforcement seizes evidence, they must do so in a legal manner. For example, if a warrant permits law enforcement access to your garage to search for a stolen car, Law enforcement is not permitted to expand the search to seize the contents of your email account on your computer. Overly broad.
this uh, exceeds the permissible exceeds the permissible bounds of the search. Where's the pigs? Where is the pit? Where are the pigs? Cats, plural. Dogs in similar port. Okay. Dogs in similar poor condition as uh, Fuckface said. They like it moist, by the way. My birds like their scratch moist sometimes. They also like dry scratch, but that's what they, you know, these motherfuckers call dirty water or non potable water. Kids actually drink it. The, other, the puppies did. Okay. Probable cause. Okay, here we go. Terminal attorney explains probable cause. The government can't simply charge people with crimes because law enforcement suspects someone is doing illegal things. Rather, a criminal complaint must detail with specificity the evidence supporting the belief the person charged committed a crime. In other words, there must be probable cause to believe the person charged is guilty of the offense. Then and only then will the court approve the criminal complaint. Okay, probable cause. This is important. This is another way I'm going to get off. In this case, we're going to get off. Government can't simply charge people with crimes because law enforcement suspects someone of doing illegal things. Government can't simply charge people with crimes because law enforcement suspects someone is doing something is doing illegal things <laughs> is doing illegal things Rather, a criminal complaint must detail uh, with specificity the evidence supporting the belief. The person charged committed a crime. In other words, there must be probable cause
to believe the person charged is guilty of the offense. Then and only then will the court approve the criminal complaint. Yeah, where's the fucking evidence, Teddy? Approve the criminal complaint. Alright, charged with a crime. When charged with a crime, you need an experienced criminal lawyer on your side. You have over 25 years of criminal defense experience. Carefully review the evidence of criminal cases, searching for evidence of any constitutional violations committed by the government, which there are lots here. Let our experience work for you. Contact us. Discuss your case today. Okay, very interesting stuff. That's quite helpful to uh, confirm or Here's the definition of on the right track, following a course that is likely to result in success. Um, what are examples of technicality? <laughs> what are examples of technicalities? a summary from Stephen O'Meara. A criminal attorney explains why cases get dismissed on suppression due to lack of probable cause for the defendant's stop by the police, suppression of defendant statements, suppression of improper search and seizures, and more. Okay, what are some, here's Cora, what are some technicalities that might lead to dismissal of a criminal case? Illegally... Expiration of statute of limitations. Illegally obtained evidence. Technicalities. Hmm? Technicalities. Illegally obtained evidence. Illegal confession. That could work for us. Told I wanted a lawyer. Double jeopardy. Failure to provide speedy trial. Unconstitutionality of statutes. Okay. Discriminatory enforcement of law. 
prosecutorial misconduct, especially failure to disclose evidence favorable to defense. There we go. Prosecutorial misconduct, especially failure to disclose evidence favorable to defense. Uh, tainted evidence or failure to establish chain of custody. Tainted evidence. Or failure to establish chain of custody. Okay. Jury misconduct. No, not at a jury yet. Misconduct. Abusive process. If the prosecution do things or fail to do things that mean it is not fair to have a trial or that the trial will be unfair, the case will be stopped by the judge. One category I already mentioned falls into this, i.e. delay in having the trial. Failing to seize important video evidence that was known to be relevant and known to be important to the defense case and unlawful arrest. Maybe unlawful arrest will be here. Seize important video evidence important. Let's see here. I wonder if uh, Anthony can get us the uh, um, I want to get the uh, video from Cop Car. Okay, uh, I want to ask Google about uh, what makes an unlawful arrest. And um, what else? What if uh, you're questioned, questioned after demanding a lawyer? Anthony said that they should have stopped right there when I asked, when I demanded a lawyer. According to Roth Davies LLC, this is known as the Miranda warning and is based on the Supreme Court's decision in the case of Miranda versus Arizona.
Here we go. Can the police continue to question you if you have requested a lawyer? RothDavies.com No. Once a suspect, can the police... This is interesting. Maybe he's right. Can the police continue to question you if you request lawyer? No. Once a suspect in police custody requests a lawyer, the police are gen generally required to stop questioning the suspect until a lawyer is present. This is known as the Miranda warning. It's based on the Supreme Court's decision on the case in the case of Miranda v. Arizona. However, if there are some, however, there are some exceptions to this rule, such as if the police have a valid public safety exception, or if the suspect initiates further communication with the police. Well, I'm in a fucking cop car in cuffs. In Edwards v. Arizona, 451 U.S. 477, 1981, the United States Supreme Court ruled that once a suspect in custody requests an attorney, the police cannot continue to question the suspect until the attorney is present. Edwards v. Arizona. Well, I had to initiate it, I guess they would say, that uh, for the communication with the police, even though I was in in um, cops already and in the car on my way to the fucking jail. Edwards v. Arizona decision clarified that a suspect's right to counsel attaches not just when formal charges are filed, but also in custodial interrogations. Not just when formal charges are filed, but also when custodial interrogations begin. I don't have a fucking lawyer. Who can afford a fucking lawyer? Edwards v. Arizona. Four fifty one US four seventy seven nineteen eighty one. Supreme Court ruled once a suspect. Request an attorney. Cops can't continue to question suspect until attorney is present.
This case answered this fall, Edwards v. Arizona. This case answered the following question. What happens if police continue an interrogation after request for counsel by the accused? The issue in this case is whether the 5th, 6th, and 14th Amendment requires suppression of a post-arrest confession, which was made after Edwards had requested his right to counsel. When an accused has invoked his right to have counsel present during custodial interrogation, a valid waiver of that right cannot be established by showing only that he responded to further police initiated custodial interrogation if he even has been advised of his rights. Ooh. Hey, man. That sounds like me. Um, this is RothDavies.com. When an accused has invoked his right to have counsel present during custodial Interrogation. A valid a valid waiver of that right cannot be established by showing only That he responded. That's kind of what happened to me. To further police initiated custodial interrogation. Even if he has been. advised of his right the issue in this case is whether the fifth sixth and fourteenth amendments require suppression of a post-arrest confession which was made after edwards had requested his right to counsel Well, that's about suppression of his confession, post-arrest confession, and it's not really uh, like I demanded that they um, they record fifth whether fifth, sixth, and fourteenth amendments require. 
suppression. Post arrest confession. All right. After Edwards requested uh, requested his right to counsel. On January 19th, Edwards was charged with robbery, burglary, and first-degree murder. Edwards was arrested at his home and informed of his Miranda rights. Edwards submitted to questioning where he denied involvement, gave a tape statement with an alibi, and attempted to make a deal. After being given the number of a county attorney who could negotiate a deal, Edwards responded by saying, I want an attorney before making a deal. Questioning immediately ceased and Edwards was taken to the county jail. The next day, January 20th, two detectives came to the jail to see Edwards. Edwards stated he did not want to talk to anyone, but the guard told him that he had to talk and took him to meet with the detectives. Edwards was again given his Miranda rights and given a chance to listen to a tape of the alleged accomplice. Edwards then gave a statement implicating himself in the crime. Edwards moved to suppress this statement at trial but the motion was eventually denied. Edwards was then convicted. It is reasonably clear that under our cases that waivers of counsel must not only be voluntary, but must also constitute a knowing and intelligent relinquishment or abandonment of a known right or privilege, a matter which depends upon the particular facts and circumstances surrounding that case, including the background experience and conduct of the accused. If the meeting had been initiated by Edwards, nothing in the Fifth or Fourteenth Amendments would have prevented the police from listening to his statements and using them as evidence at trial. When an accused has invoked his right to have counsel present during custodial interrogation, oh shit, confusing. Decision of the lower courts is reversed. Blah blah blah. I skipped a paragraph. The right to counsel and the effect of that request on the interrogation was laid out in Miranda. In Miranda, it was decided that once counsel has been requested, the interrogation must cease until an attorney is present. Has been requested. Interrogation must cease. Interrogation must cease until attorney is present. Okay, so they uh, they denied me that, of course.
The decision in the lower courts was reversed because the use of the statements made by Edwards after his request for counsel violated his rights under the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments. Having requesting counsel on January 19th, Edwards did not waive that right by speaking without an attorney on January 20th. Edwards did not waive his right to counsel and the statements made by Edwards on January 20th are inadmissible as evidence. Interesting. What is an example of custodial interrogation? Happens when one or more law enforcement officers question someone while he or she is being detained. Keep in mind that although custodial interrogation L-E-O's question someone while being while being detained Can the police question me once I ask for an attorney? This is intermountainlegal.net. Gonna do a little research on the uh, amendments. Should write them down. Get used to them. Although asking for an attorney requires officers to cease questioning you, they may still arrest you if they think you have committed a crime or they have enough reason to believe you have committed a crime. Well, they did anyway. If they think, they think, they think I committed a crime. They don't have any fucking proof. Or they have enough reason to believe you have committed a crime. If you spontaneously or voluntarily speak without being questioned. Yeah, I was questioned. I was questioned in the car. Your words can be used against you. Without being questioned. I was definitely questioning. He read me Miranda rights after he read me my Miranda after I demanded a lawyer. He read me my Miranda rights and questioned me. Um, police.
still required to stop during interrogation at the time you ask for an attorney and cannot question you further until you have an attorney present. Police are required to stop interrogation custodial at the time you ask for an attorney at the time you ask for attorney and cannot question you further Until attorney is present. You must clearly communicate that you are asking for an attorney and that you do not wish to be questioned anymore. Must, eh? Sometimes during investigation a person might say, well, I think I want to talk to an attorney. This statement leaves some question in the officer's or judge's mind as to whether or not you actually asked for an attorney at that point. I said, I said clearly, I want, an emer a t I want a lawyer. Although asking for an attorney requires officers to cease questioning, they may still arrest you if they think you have committed a crime. Or they have enough reason to believe you have committed a crime. If they think. Well, that's pretty fucking vague. If you spontaneously or voluntarily speak without being questioned, your words can be used against you. Not only is it good to ask for an attorney, but you should also stop speaking until you have a chance to consult with an attorney on your case. Well, they're fucking throwing me in a cop car and sending me to jail on no fucking charges. This fucking sucks. She's, uh, she's asking for attorney, requires officers to cease questioning you. They may still arrest you. That's pretty fucking vague. If they think, uh, all they have to do is, oh, well, I thought she was guilty of some crime. Think you have committed a crime. Or they have enough reason to believe you committed a crime pretty fucking vague didn't have probable cause though And a uh, reasonable uh, witness. No probable cause.
right. Okay, that's... Holy fuck, I'm gonna fucking crash into my house. Fuck you, pigs! Fuck you! Give me my animals back, you fucking corrupt pigs! Intermountain legal. Intermountain legal. Dot net. Okay. So I'm gonna write down the um the um amendments. Let's see here. <sighs> twenty seven amendments in twenty seven minutes. Wow, that's pretty cool. National Constitution Center. <laughs> We'll officially get started with the record button. Welcome, everybody. Excited to have you all in class today. My name is Curry Sautner. I'm the Chief Learning Officer at the National Constitution Center. And today's class is all about the amendments to the Constitution. There's 27 of them. But we would love to hear what's your favorite amendment. Feel free to share that in the chat or what you think the 28th Amendment should actually be. So feel free to. Feel free to share that in the chat as the class goes on, along with any of the questions that you have. Now, to go through all of these amendments, oh. we have one of our top scholars at the National Constitution Center with us today, Tom Donnelly. So, Tom, we oh, have had caffeine or sugar, and we are ready to run through this. So, we know we always have lots of questions about the amendments and the effects that they have on the original or structural Constitution and we, the people. But maybe when we think about these questions that we dive into, we should really start with, if we want to add that 28th Amendment, can you tell us how we could possibly make it happen? Hmm, good question. Absolutely. So it's a very difficult process. And so this was by design by the founding generation. They wanted us to be able to change the Constitution over time as we learn new lessons. They didn't think they had a monopoly on constitutional wisdom, but they wanted the process to be hard. And as a result, they, they really made it difficult. They made you had to get more than majority support in different places to amend the Constitution. There's two big steps here. There's a proposal phase and a ratification phase. So beginning with the proposal, there are two ways that you could propose a new amendment. One is if you can get the support of two-thirds members of both houses of Congress. So a two-thirds vote in the U.S. House and a two-thirds vote in the U.S. Senate. You could see already there in modern politics, you probably have to get support of both parties to support an amendment, and that's only to get it proposed. The other mechanism is that uh, you could also, through two-thirds of the states, propose a new convention for, for proposing amendments. Now, every amendment that we have in the Constitution, all 27 of them, came through that first proposal phase through Congress. But you can see there are two phases. There are two ways, one from Congress and one bubbling up from the states. The other part of the amendment process is ratification. So once, if you get your two-thirds vote in the House, two-thirds vote in the Senate, that's not the end of the process. Your amendment is then sent to the states for ratification, 
And Congress gets to determine whether ratification happens through state legislatures or specially called state ratifying conventions. But either way, you have to again then get three-fourths of the states to support your amendment. So it's a massively high threshold. The theory behind it is that we want to have amendments to the Constitution sometimes, but we want them to have to have broad support with the idea that, you know, those are, that those are going to be the amendments that are most likely good ideas. They're going to improve the Constitution because they've been able to get support from a broad swath of the American people. Wait, we're going to fucking pull up on that a little bit. And then go We want them to have to have broad support with the idea that, you know, those are, that those are going to be the amendments that are most likely good ideas. They're going to improve the Constitution because they've been able to get support from a broad swath of the American people. Awesome. So our work is cut out, awesome. and we should definitely, if we want to awesome. propose the 28th Amendment, look for broad support across all party lines and kind of like all organizational levels. So when we think about it, it's, it's only happened 27 times, and that's not a lot. But what I love this next slide and what you've done for us is it kind of like broken into groups. And said, okay, these, these came in this bucket, these came in this bucket. So walk us through the big groupings of these amendments, and then we'll dive into how they affect the Constitution, and then go oh. 1 through 27 in all of 27 minutes with questions, Tom, with questions. <laughs> exactly. So you can see there are four big periods here. And so what's one of the really interesting things when you break it down this way is you could say we, we have 12 amendments added right there in the founding period itself. So we create this new constitution, and one of the first things we do is we start tinkering with it. So this is where we get the Bill of Rights and two other amendments. And then we have another 60 years until we get the 13th Amendment. And so we have three new amendments during Reconstruction, that period after the Civil War, the 13th, 14th, and 15th, that many scholars refer to as America's second founding. And then, Curry, we have another 40-plus year gap until we get the 16th Amendment. And so during the Progressive Era, 1913 to 1920, we get amendments 16, 17, 18, and 19. And then finally we give, you know, that this last era is like the sort of modern era. It gives us <laughs> 1933 to 1992. But it, it gives you an idea that sort of little by little, every few years we would add some additional amendments. And so that's where we get the final eight amendments to the Constitution. And so our next time we do this class, I'm just going to stamp sorta over the word modern. <laughs> Again, 
James Madison himself was skeptical that a Bill of Rights was necessary, but he learned from the ratification process. And furthermore, he knew that a Bill of Rights was going to be really important to binding the wounds of the nation around ratification. It was going to bring those people who oppose the Constitution into the fold, support the new Constitution, to understand the new government heard them, and hopefully the American project would work. And so that's how we get those first 10 amendments to the Constitution, the Bill of Rights. And that's amazing to think about it. Like, we always forget the ratification was in a way, was carrying apart a little bit of the country, and this is the compromise to bring everybody back together and say, we got a little bit about what you wanted, and we're going to put the Bill of Rights in because you're right, and we'll get a little bit about what you want back into this Constitution. Mm. Now, the groupings within that 10, we have sub-sub-groupings again, and I love this. Take those Bill of Rights and group them again into smaller buckets. Yeah, so we're borrowing these groupings from our great friend Yale's uh, Akil Rita Mar. This is how he teaches the Bill of Rights. And it's a good way, uh, I think, to think about how these amendments sort of fit together and work together to cohere into a bigger vision. Should we start with the First Amendment and the freedom of conscience? Always. It's a big one within itself. Yeah, so I mean, the First Amendment, in a way, is its own bundle of rights. Because within it, we get religious liberty, we get free speech, a free press, right to assemble, and the right to petition your government for a redress of grievances. So just quickly ticking through those five categories, we see here with the First Amendment, it protects religious liberty in two ways. First, it guards against government establishing religion, and second, it protects the free exercise of religion. So in those two ways, promotes the freedom of conscience, the right to believe or not as we wish. So that's religion. That's religion. We also know that we have key protections for free speech and a free press. And so this means that the government, generally speaking, can't punish you for what you write or what you say. And generally speaking, the Supreme Court itself protects speech unless it's likely to cause imminent lawless action. So if we're looking at free speech or free press today, the Supreme Court protects these rights more fully, more robustly than at any time in our entire history. At the same time, even these rights have limits. So there are areas where governments have more authority to regulate speech. For instance, when there's a special relationship between the speaker and the government, and a classic example would be within public schools. So that's that's religion and speech. Awesome, and I love this idea of that, like this awesome. together is this freedom of your brain, your thought, your ideas, your friends, that freedom of conscience to do and talk and share ideas. Now, the second grouping groups the military amendment, so the Second Amendment and the Third Amendment. Absolutely. And actually, just to get the last part of the, the First Amendment out there, oh, we also have assembly and petition, which are two oh, really important sorry, rights. <laughs> yeah, no, we, we, that we don't end up thinking about as much today, but these rights are really important to minority groups, often those without political power, allowing them to gather together to share their ideas, and then eventually to use the petition power to send those ideas to the government. So that's, that's the yes. end of the First Amendment, currently. Yeah, gathering together. Yeah, sorry, I thought you were there. Gathering together as a group and discussing and then showing, talking to your government and being loud about it in a way that makes good change and good ideas. 27 amendments in 27 minutes. See if we can get that back. It's the National Constitution Center. We're on like the fifth or sixth amendment.
another one bites the dust, and another one's gone, and another one's gone, another one bites the dust. Hey, it's gonna get you too, another one bites the dust. Down, 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 I don't remember the 27 amendments to the hawk. Oh, here we go. Introductory level. Uh, national. Protection. If you're going to be convicted, you need to be convicted beyond uh, the. Uh -huh. going to pull up. Pull up for the mystery tour. Pull up. Pull up for the mystery tour. The magical mystery tour is coming to take you away. Coming to take you away, take you today. Thanks for like 272. Almost like 300k, man. On one of these damn podcasts. Press, the right to assemble, and the right to petition your government for a redress of grievances. So just quickly ticking through those five categories, we see here with the First Amendment, it protects religious liberty in two ways. First, it guards against government establishing religion. And second, it protects the free exercise of religion. So in those two ways, promotes the freedom of conscience, the right to believe or not as we wish. So that's religion. That's religion. We also know that we have key protections for free speech and a free press. And so this means that the government, generally speaking, can't punish you for what you write or what you say. And generally speaking, the, the Supreme Court itself protects speech unless it's likely to cause imminent lawless action. So if we're looking at free speech or free press today, the Supreme Court protects these rights more fully, more robustly than at any time in our entire history. At the same time, even these rights have limits. So there are areas where governments have more authority to regulate speech. For instance, when there's a special relationship between the speaker and the government, and a classic example would be within public schools. So that's that's religion and speech. Awesome, and I love this idea of back to like this, they group together as this freedom of your brain, your thought, your ideas, your friends, that freedom of conscience to do and talk and share ideas. Now the second grouping groups the military amendment, so the second amendment and the third amendment. Absolutely, and actually just to get the last part of the, the first amendment out there, oh, we also have assembly and petition. Which are two oh, really important sorry, rights. Had them. <laughs> yeah, no, that we, we don't end up thinking about as much today. But these rights are really important to minority okay. groups, often those don't without political power, allowing them to gather together to share their ideas, day. and then eventually to use day. the petition power to send those ideas to the government. So that's that's the yes. end of the First Amendment, Curry. Yeah, gathering together. Yeah, sorry, I thought you were there. Gathering together as a group and discussing, so and then uh, showing permits to have a demonstration. You have to get a fucking demonstration permit i think that is an incursion of our freedom of assembly fuck you bitches talking to your government and being loud about it in a way that makes good change and good idea yeah. sharing so military amendments now we go to the second and third amendment yeah so both of these amendments have to do with the founding generation's fear of professional soldiers and so the Second Amendment for the founding generation, it went to early concerns about standing armies and the value of rooting your community safety in a well-regulated citizen-led, citizen-filled militia. 
Also through the Supreme Court and decisions like Heller and McDonald, we now recognize the Second Amendment as protecting an individual right to keep and bear arms for purposes of protecting your home. That's the Second Amendment. The Third Amendment, though, speaks to the American colonists' own lived experience. It talks about whether or not, it says that we, we can't be required to, so, to quarter, in other words, house soldiers in our own homes. And you may think this is a weird thing to have in the Bill of Rights, but it emerges from the American colonists' lived experience. The British, under the British Quartering Act of 1774, forced this upon the colonists. And so they wanted to make sure, under this new constitution, this new national government wouldn't force Americans to do the same. Awesome. And then next on our lineup, we look at the Fourth and the Fifth Amendments and kind of group this around privacy and property rights. Privacy. Absolutely. And so beginning with the Fourth Amendment, this is the amendment that regulates our, our relations with often police officers. And so it protects us from the government unreasonably searching and seizing various things, our persons, houses, papers, and effects. And so the protection here is against unreasonable searches and seizures by the government. The bottom line is that before the government can search your home, seize your property, it needs a good reason. And so this is also the justification for something like requiring police officers generally to get a warrant before conducting searches or seizures. And the Fifth Amendment? The Fifth Amendment speaks to the, the founding generation's commitment to property rights. Here, what we're talking about here is that last part of the amendment where you could see shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. So this says that if the government wants to take your property, seize your home, something like that, the government has to pay you a fair price for it. Um, and what's that clause called exactly? It's called the takings clause. Which I, I remember first learning about that and thinking it was something much more, and it's literally like taking, like literally, like more, much more direct than you realize. Now we dive into, you know, pulling the fifth over into this grouping as well. So it teeters on both groupings. And this grouping looks at fair process, jury rights, and the rights of the accused, and looks at the fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth amendments. Yeah, so I mean, the Fifth Amendment, the rest of the Fifth Amendment speaks broadly to the rights of the accused. So it grants criminal defendants a right against self-incrimination. So this is the right to remain silent to hear with the Miranda rulings, or when you hear people say, I plead the Fifth, what they're pleading is the Fifth Amendment. Well, you see other key protections here, like the, the protection not to be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, which speaks to broad procedural fairness. And so with the Fifth Amendment, you can see the beginning of the Bill of Rights speaking again to the rights of the accused, which then blends into the Sixth Amendment, which gives criminal defendants even more rights, like the right to a jury trial in criminal cases, a right to a lawyer, the right to be informed of what the government is accusing you of, and the Confrontation Clause, which gives you a right to cross-examine witnesses against you. Awesome. Now we jump into the Seventh Amendment that talks about, you know, rules of common law and the right of a trial by jury. Yeah, so the Seventh Amendment responds to one of the anti-federalist main concerns, which is that the national government wasn't forced to hold uh, jury trials in what are called civil cases. So this is just the right to a jury trial in certain non-criminal cases. That the, that's what they mean by civil cases, non-criminal cases. So it's, again, a broader expansion of the right to a jury trial. And then we dive into the Eighth Amendment, which is most middle school students' favorite amendment to talk about. Yeah, so the, the Eighth Amendment uh, bans ex, uh, excessive fines, excessive bail, and cruel and unusual punishment. And so this is the amendment that often is dealing with death penalty cases. That's where you may see it a lot of the time. And it spoke to the founding generation, and especially those anti-federalists, 
those who oppose the Constitution feared this distant national government might invent new, new, uh, new crimes or impose really harsh penalties, often to suppress political dissenters. And so the Eighth Amendment was designed to avoid that problem. So, Tom, and really, real quick sidebar. So when we were we were having a conversation about the Declaration of Independence and the grievances, now some of the colonists were sent all the way back to Britain to, to be heard by a group of Englishmen about their crimes, crimes from a country that they were really a colony, a continent that they weren't a part of. Um, and so does this kind of spur from some of those original grievances and worry about a distant government accusing you and punishing you and you had no connection to them. Well, it's that, and that's also where the jury rights, obviously, that coming in too. Juries were seen as a popular protection. If you're going to be convicted, you need to be convicted beyond, uh, uh, you know, with, with uh, a jury of your peers in mind. This language also, uh, we derive it from one of the earliest Bill of right, Bills of Rights in the United States, the Virginia Declaration of Rights. So the Virginia Bill of Rights, we get some of this language from there, authored by Virginia's George Mason. Awesome. So I, I love when we look at this document, we have to really understand that, that, you know, it's coming from somewhere, coming from other written documents. It's coming from experiences of the colonists, and they're weaving it into, you know, this listing of how our government's going to work so we don't have these issues again, and we ensure that people are kept safe and free. Uh, now, the next two I always think of like it's the catch-all amendments, the Ninth and Tenth Amendments of the Bill of Rights, popular sovereignty um, and states' rights. Yes, popular sovereignty means power being rooted in we the people. And the Ninth Amendment is interpreted by many scholars to write certain natural rights in the Constitution. So it's meant as a cautionary note of sorts where it tells us that just because there are certain rights that are not included in the Bill of Rights doesn't mean that you don't have them. It goes to the idea that the rights that we as a people have are way broader than you could ever put on a piece of paper. So if you read the Bill of Rights as including every right that we have as people, you're reading it the wrong way. And so this responds to the concerns. This is one of James Madison's big concerns. That if I start writing down the rights, I'm not going to get them all down there. And even if I write certain ones down, maybe I'm not expressing them as broadly as they really are felt and lived. And so the Ninth Amendment goes to those concerns. The Tenth Amendment speaks to uh, the powers that are reserved to the states and to the people. And so before we had a new U.S. US Constitution, the states had really, really broad powers. And, and, And the states were seen as the governments that were closest to the people. So the states were really seen as expressing the views of the people in a, in a really closely related way. And the Tenth Amendment was all about recognizing the great, the, you know, the great amount of power that remained in the states. It honors our constitutional system's commitment to federalism, which is that some power is going to go to the national government, but a lot of power is going to go to the states. And the states, like you said, as, uh, as representatives of the people even closer than this big national government. Um, now, and which Colin pointed out earlier, that like, You see this shift between the Bill of Rights and the Reconstruction Amendments about, you know, who is the protector of we the people. And so we'll just nod to that, Colin, great observation, and we'll get into that a little bit later when we get the 13th. So what happened? What's the backstory on the 11th Amendment? Why did they add this in? What was going on? Yeah, so this is added four years after the Bill of Rights. So really, really quickly, it's ratified really, really quickly as well. It's ratified in seven months. And this amendment is, it's one of the, uh, one of the uh, various, amend- Bill of Ra- uh, various amendments that we ratified that were meant to tell the Supreme Court they were wrong. 
So there was a there was a there was a decision, uh, Chisholm versus Georgia, which had to do with whether or not ordinary citizens could sue the states for various things. And the Supreme Court said yes. And then we, the people, through the Eleventh Amendment, said no. And so the Eleventh Amendment is about protecting what's called state sovereign immunity, which is the state's ability to not be sued by ordinary citizens. Awesome, and I love that again, nodding to checks and balances and separation of powers and the. Con- People putting it into the Constitution can tell the Supreme Court no, so that's a check on the court. Now, the 12th Amendment is probably the favorite backstory of the day. Um, Why did we have a 12th Amendment? What was going on? Yeah, so the 12th Amendment adjusts uh, the the Electoral College. So again, it's it's very shortly after the the, uh, U.S. Constitution's uh, ratified, we decided the Electoral College wasn't quite written in as clear and as, as good a way as we needed it to be. So we used the 12th Amendment to change it. Under the original constitution, electors cast ballots for uh, not one, but two candidates for president. And the person who comes in first place becomes president. The person who comes in second place becomes vice president. When George Washington's running for president the first two elections, no problem. George Washington easily won. John Adams was easily in second place. It worked perfectly fine. But we saw by even by 1796, as early as that, we see the emergence of political parties. The founding generation didn't think we'd have them, but very quickly we saw that they were developing with Thomas Jefferson running against John Adams, Thomas Jefferson affiliated with the Democratic Republicans, John Adams with the Federalists. And so they have these two heated elections. John Adams wins the first one, but Thomas Jefferson finished in second place. So he becomes the vice president of his political rival, John Adams. This would be like Donald Trump being the vice president of Joe Biden or Hillary Clinton of Donald Trump. You can imagine this may not work as well as you want within an administration. But then on the flip side, Thomas Jefferson runs again against John Adams four years later in the election of 1800. This time, Thomas Jefferson uh, defeats John Adams. But because the Electoral College gave each elector two votes, Thomas Jefferson actually tied his running mate, Aaron Burr. And so the Electoral College itself didn't settle the election. Aaron Burr, rather than standing aside for Thomas Jefferson, who everyone knew was heading the ticket, said, hey, under the rules, I can win. And so the election goes to the House of Representatives. There's great, there are, there are like tons of ballots around it. There's a deadlock. Eventually, there's a breakthrough. Thomas Jefferson wins. And we have a peaceful transition of power from John Adams to Thomas Jefferson, which is an important constitutional precedent. We went from one party to another peacefully. But we also decided very quickly, no, we need to change the Electoral College. The 12th Amendment still gives electors two votes. But under the 12th Amendment, one vote specifically goes for president and one vote specifically goes for vice president. Awesome. Um, always a fun uh, storyline. Now we jump almost 60 years, a little more than 60 years later to the Reconstruction time period. So end of the Civil War. And this is where we see this shift in the federal government. And we see three amendments come out that kind of rebalances um, the power in the Constitution for Congress and for the federal government to take action on these amendments. So tell us a little bit about the Reconstruction time period. I love this lithograph um, that we can do to look at that moment. And then we'll dive in the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. Yeah, so this is the period after the Civil War. Um, and the Republican Party, the party of Lincoln, is trying to figure out how do we need to change the Constitution to set better constitutional baselines after the Civil War to make sure, especially that we could give a new birth of freedom, as Lincoln promised at Gettysburg, to African-Americans. And so we ratify a series of three transformational amendments. The first one, the 13th Amendment, ratified in 1865, and it abolishes slavery. 
The second of them is the 14th Amendment ratified in 1868, and it wrote the Declaration of Independence as promise of freedom and equality into the Constitution. And then finally, the 15th Amendment ratified in 1870 promised to end racial discrimination in voting. And so all of these amendments together are meant to expand um, equal citizenship, promises of freedom, equality, and for African-American men, the right to vote. Awesome. Now, the next grouping is the progressive era. So 1913 to 1920, again, short period of time here. And we have Amendments 16 through 19 kind of come through. So let's dive into the 16th Amendment. Yes, so the 16th Sixteenth Amendment ratified in 1913 gave Congress the power to pass an income tax. And so this is another amendment that's a response to a Supreme Court decision. In 1895, in a case called Pollock, the Supreme Court struck down a federal income tax. This led to great uh, agitation against the Supreme Court and in support of an income tax by the populist movement, by the progressive movement. And eventually this culminates in 1913 in the 16th Amendment. The 17th Amendment? 17th Amendment ratified the same year in 1913, and it provides for the direct election of senators. So under the original Constitution, senators are selected by state legislatures. With the 17th Amendment, we say, no, 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 we think the voters should, should select state senators. Two big reasons. One, the direct election of senators is consistent with broader trends towards greater democracy in the United States. So the 17th Amendment was of a piece with that. The other is that some reformers charged that state legislatures were selling some Senate states in backroom deals. And so there's uh, allegations of corruption. It always blows my mind that we did not vote for senators before 1913. It feels like such a short time period ago. Uh, now, I'm actually going to add an amendment to our lineup in this grouping, because when you do the 18th Amendment, I don't think you can do the 18th Amendment without doing the 21st Amendment. So let's dive into both. Yeah, so the, the, the 18th Amendment is the Prohibition Amendment, so it banned the manufacture, sale, or transportation of intoxicating liquors. We ratified it in 1919. Um, and, you know, in part, this ends up being a response to, you know, what were serious concerns in America about alcohol use. Americans drank a lot, and that brought with it all sorts of societal problems. You know, uh, salaries uh, or wages uh, drunk, drinking away at, at, at saloons, homes broken up. There were serious reasons why reformers were pushing for prohibition. The prohibition amendment itself brings together a variety of different movements, progressives, suffragists, populists, nativists, white southerners. It's not, it's, these, these reform movements didn't always go, go together or see eye to eye on a bunch of things, but when it came to prohibition, they did. And so they pushed the prohibition amendment into place and it's ratified in 1919. It's in place for 13 years. And then we, the people decide that was a lousy idea. And so the 18th amendment becomes the only amendment that we repealed outright. And so what, what does the amendment say? It says the 18th article of amendment to the Constitution of the United States is hereby repealed. And so it's really direct. And this is just an example, again, of us experimenting with one amendment and then concluding just a little over a decade later, no, 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 we don't want that in the Constitution anymore. And the 21st Amendment was done by ratifying convention. It's the one anomaly. Is that correct? Yes, so the 21st Amendment ratified in 1933 gets rid of prohibition. It's the only time we ratify through state, especially called state ratifying conventions. Every other amendment, the other 26, are ratified by state legislatures. Fascinating. Okay, now we're back on track, and let's take a look at the 19th Amendment. So it's a really important one, um, and we just did a great, amazing tour of the 19th Amendment exhibit last night. So uh, there's just so many amazing players we could talk about this. 
Absolutely. So the 19th Amendment's ratified in 1920. And what it does is it writes the right to vote for women into the Constitution. And so this is an amendment that bubbles up originally from the states. We see women voting initially out west. And then over time, it, this proved to be a good idea. It expands to the east, including to big states like New York and Michigan. And eventually we conclude, wait, we want this to be a national rule. So we write it right into the Constitution. It's an example of the states being, as Justice Brandeis said, laboratories of democracy. And so we're learning from good things that states do and then turning them into a national rule. Okay, now to the last category. I feel like a game show host. Um, the modern-ish era. So 1933 <laughs> to 1992. It's a pretty big graph. We have eight amendments. Let's begin with the 20th Amendment. Yeah, so the, the, the 20th Amendment's ratified in 1933. What it was meant to do is to limit the amount of time between an election and when the new government takes over. And so it moved the date from March after the new election of the, of the government taking over. It moved it up to January. Awesome. Pretty straightforward. We already talked about the 21st Amendment, and you can see the celebration there. And we'll jump into the 1951 and the 22nd Amendment. The 22nd Amendment effectively limits presidents to two terms in office. It's a term limits amendment for the president. This arises from George Washington's own example. So he, you know, he runs for president, wins re-election, and then says, I'm retiring to Mount Vernon. Every president until FDR does the same, does not run, does not, is, 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 you know, does not break the George Washington precedent. FDR does. He's, he's elected four separate times. And then we decide in 1951, no, we like the way George Washington did it better. We want that term limit in place. Awesome. Now we jump into 1961 and we look at the 23rd Amendment. And that kind of brings us to the 23rd and the 24th. I always group those amendments together. So both of these, it's, it's, it's the civil rights era. And so 1961, the 23rd Amendment, what it does is it gives D.C. voters a voice in presidential elections. It gives the District of Columbia three electoral votes. How does this connect to the civil rights movement? Well, in part, the, the, the 23rd Amendment, by bringing Washington, D.C. into presidential elections, enfranchises a massive African-American population in the District of Columbia and gives them a voice in presidential elections. And the 24th Amendment in 1964? Sure, so the 24th Amendment bans poll taxes in national elections. So these are taxes that you would have to pay before you could vote. And so this was a, a device used, especially in the Jim Crow South, to keep African-Americans away from the polls. When this amendment is ratified, there are still five states that had poll taxes on the books. And so the 24th Amendment gets rid of them as to national elections. And then just two years later in 1966, the Supreme Court in a case called Harper versus Virginia Board of Elections would say, no, 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 they can't apply in state or local elections either. Now, I always find these next few, are, I mean, every amendment is connected to a backstory in history. But the 25th Amendment, kind of give us the backstory and then why they added the amendment. And we'll look at the 26th in the same lens as well. Sure. So it's 1967, 25th Amendment. It deals with the issue of presidential succession and incapacity. And so part of what's arising here is, you know, people are starting to think seriously about this after the assassination of John F. Kennedy in 1963. And so the 25th Amendment deals with these problems in a, in a few different ways. One, it makes it clear that when a president dies, resigns, or is removed, by the vice president becomes president. Two, it gives us a mechanism for selecting a vice president. Um, and that's section two. Section three deals with the problem of what if a president is just temporarily incapacitated? So say they need to go under anesthesia 
to get some sort of procedure done, what can we do? Well, the third section of the 25th Amendment says the president can sign a piece of paper and the vice president becomes president. And then when the president comes out, sign another piece of paper and becomes president again. Finally, Section 4 deals with the problem of what if a president is incapacitated in a way but doesn't recognize it themselves? It provides a mechanism for members of government to get that president temporarily removed from office um, uh, to avoid that problem. And the 26th Amendment is the fastest amendment. I love these two because they go opposite of each other, these last two. So the 26th Amendment is the fastest amendment to be ratified. What was happening that kind of stirred so much energy for adding this amendment? And what is the amendment about? The 26th Amendment, it, it's ratified in 1971. It's ratified in a little over three months. So really, really quickly, this is the fastest amendment. What it does is it effectively sets a national voting age at 18. And so before the ratification of the 26th Amendment, most states set their voting age at 21. With the 26th Amendment, we say, no, we think it should be 18. Why? Well, this is taking place during the Vietnam War. And so many people reach the conclusion if you are willing to sacrifice for your country at the age of 18, you should be able to vote too. Yeah, how about 16? Awesome. And now to the slowest amendment process, the longest, the 27th Amendment. So this idea of this amendment, who did it spark from originally? James Madison. So James Madison wrote this one. This amendment is the original, it would have been the original second amendment. It was proposed with the rest of the Bill of Rights, but it wasn't ratified at the time. It would only be ratified a little over 200 years later, uh, and it was taken on, so it went from James Madison's pen to then the last work getting it ratified was, it was a student who was mad about getting a lousy grade on a college paper at the University of Texas. This is the person here, Gregory Watson. He received a C on a paper in his government class. He, he had to write about any sort of governmental process. And so he found a book that had lists of amendments that had never been ratified. He saw this amendment on that list and he thought, well, you know, there's no specific time limit in Article place. There's no limit written into the amendment itself. So I'm going to get this thing ratified. You know, we could still get this thing ratified. Um, and so he argues in his paper that the 20 that what became the 27th Amendment was the original Second Amendment could still be ratified because there's no time limit on when amendments can be ratified. Again, he gets a lousy grade. He gets a C on this paper. He, he, he protests. He says, no, this is a good paper. I should get a higher grade. It's both his TA and his professor say, no, we think it's a lousy paper. And so what Gregory Watson then does is said, OK, you may not fix my grade, but I'm going to get this thing written into the Constitution. So it's a really unlikely story here, Curry. <laughs> what the amendment itself deals with is that it limits Congress's power to give itself a raise. And so if Congress wants to give itself a raise, there has to be another election before that raise takes effect. So it's just seen as a way of, you know, Congress can give itself a raise, but it allows the voters to weigh in and say, was that a good idea or was that a bad idea as part of the next, next elections for Congress. And so what Gregory Watson does is he writes letters to a bunch of different state legislatures, to governors, to senators, you name it. And most people say nothing. But there is one powerful senator who says this is actually a pretty good idea. It's, it's Bill Cohen of Maine. Um, and so Maine votes to ratify it. And then gradually over time, other states follow. Part of the reason, Curry, is that during this period of time, there's great dissatisfaction, disapproval of Congress. They maybe don't think that many, many Americans may not think Congress deserved the salary they were already getting. So in a way, the 27th Amendment dovetails with his general dissatisfaction with Congress until finally in 1992, over two centuries after the first Congress proposed the amendment to the states, three-fourths of the states ratified the 27th Amendment. So the 27th Amendment becomes part 
of the Constitution. It just took a little over 200 years. And talk about waiting and biding your time until the right moment. <laughs> uh, Gregory Watson came around at the right moment. So, Tom, when we think about what would the 28th Amendment be, uh, and there was comments about income tax and ERA um, and a positive voting rights amendment, one of the things that you've kind of, when you analyze the 27 amendments that are in there, you've said to us before, sometimes it's taking our big ideas of what we believe we should be and adding them to the Constitution. And sometimes it's just clarifying and fixing like almost like clerical errors in the Constitution. So what's the big ideas about constitutional amendments that our students should think about if they do want to pull a Gregory Watson but add in a completely new amendment to the system? Well, yeah, I think just going through the amendments like this is a fun exercise. It, it gives us a sense that amendments can do, as you said, Corey, really big things. Like the Reconstruction Amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, there's a reason people call them America's second founding. They make massive changes to the rights within the Constitution and the balance of power between the national government and the states. But then we have things like the 20th Amendment, where you wonder, like, how did that even get ratified? All it's doing is moving up the date of when the government's starting from March to January. So it seems to be a really little change. But either way, I think from all of these stories, what we learn is that one, any amendment's going to be, need to get really, really broad support. And so as a result of that, either it's going to have to be an idea that really has support in our, in our day from both parties, um, uh, uh, you know, or, you know, it has to be something, in, in, you know, related to that. It often has to respond to some sort of, whether it's a, whether it's a you know, movement that's putting a new uh, idea on the agenda, or just a deep-seated concern that people have about the nation. They're often going to respond to that. So it's either going to be a big thing like that, or sometimes, you know, I wonder, like, how did, how did the 20th Amendment get in? Like, it's just, it, 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 it can sometimes be, if you have a good idea to make a small change that would seem to make the government better, sometimes that works too, because it doesn't seem so political, probably. Um, and yeah, so yeah. Uh, I, I would sort of leave it at that. But they, they, I guess the point is there are many different pathways. There are many different kinds of amendments. But regardless, what you have to do is find an idea that's going to attract broad support because that's the only way that's going to be able to be added to the Constitution. But also that the ability that it can change and it can be modified is also fascinating, too. So, Tom, thank you so much. That was really fun to go through all of them and then kind of almost like analyze it for the big ideas and the big picture that we should see at the same time, too. So thank you all very much, Tom. That was fantastic. Um, and if you have any questions, please let us know. Yes, there will be a recording, and we'll send it out to everybody um, at the end of the week's wrap-up. And it is also, thank you, Colin, it is on our that YouTube channel. Freaking so great. everybody, have a fantastic day. Happy Wednesday. And, Tom, thank you so much. That was great. Thank you. This is all It's a fun one. I think the 28th. Well done, Tom. Okay, this is great. Freaking great. What about you?
post. Your post is too long. Welcome, Dr. Baker. Dr. Beeman. Says too long. So, damn. How much too long is it? Post is still too long. Fucking perjury. Shame on you, cunts. Fucking Clarissa. What did she do with my other chicks? She fucking stole them. And she killed them. Fucking sick fuck. I think she killed them and made it look like I had not. Like I hadn't seen them hatch. But she killed them. And she starved a bunch of my other chickens. What the fuck did she do? Fucking cunt. Investigation. Evil sons of bitches. Everybody should bone up on this. Followers, highlight Christopher Perez, Arizona politics, Arizona progressive movement, Arizona Craigslist Valleywide, Tucson Democrats, ACLU of Arizona, Democratic America, Democrats only, Tucson lost and found dogs, Telemundo Phoenix, Pascayaki tribe. Tucson Gardeners, Tucson um, Artist Collective, Midas Touch, SNL, Santa County Tea Party, Libertarian Party, Santa County Watchdog, Humane Society, Christian Democrats, ACLU, good enough.
Let me post this on Twitter now. See a mountain. So let's see what's going on. All 27 amendments and We love to glorify our founding fathers, but the fact of the matter is they were only human. Luckily for us, they realized this, and in their framework for a new government known as the Constitution, they included the provision that changes or amendments may be added at a later date if three-fourths of the states approve. This provision was used right away to create the Bill of Rights, the ten most famous amendments. These were all drafted by James Madison to satisfy the anti-federalist worries that the new Constitution was too powerful. The First Amendment contains the most basic freedoms, speech, press, religion, assembly, and petition. To many school kids, the First Amendment is the Bill of Rights, but the remaining nine are just as important. The Second Amendment provides the right to bear arms and maintain a well-regulated militia. This amendment, possibly more than any other, has created controversy. On one side are those who point to the right to bear arms and argue that taking away any weapons is against the law. On the other side are those who argue that the context of the amendment is about the military and basic safety of the people for which assault weapons are not required. The Third Amendment makes it so that soldiers cannot force homeowners to quarter them or give them residence. The Fourth Amendment protects citizens from being searched or having their property taken illegally. It's also the reason cops on crime shows always complain about needing probable cause to get a warrant. The Fifth Amendment also contains a number of cop show references. It makes certain that persons cannot be held or put on trial without being charged with a crime. It allows those on trial to plead the Fifth or refuse to be a witness against themselves, otherwise known as the right to be silent. The Fifth also includes protection from being tried for the same crime twice, and the right to life, liberty, and property unless taken by due process of law. Sixth gives the right to trial by jury, to confront the accusing witness, and to obtain a lawyer. Seven extends all those rights I just mentioned to civil or common cases. The Eighth Amendment protects against excessive fines as well as cruel and unusual punishments. The Ninth and Tenth Amendments usually go together and are possibly the most important. Nine makes it clear that even if a right is not listed in the Bill of Rights, that doesn't mean people don't have it. The Tenth takes all the power not specifically given to the federal government by the Constitution and gives it to the states and the people. Eleven prevents states from being sued by members of other states in the Supreme Court. Twelve is a very long and very dense amendment which describes a procedure when no president receives a majority of electoral votes. The House of Representatives would vote and each state would receive one vote. The 13th Amendment was only unlucky if you owned slaves as they were legally freed. If you owned slaves, you also probably lived in the South, so 14 wasn't any better. It made former slave citizens, punished slaves for not giving them suffrage, made it so ex-Confederate politicians couldn't run for office, and made it clear that the U.S. would not be paying off Confederate war debts. Apparently, all that wasn't clear enough, though, so the 15th Amendment was required to spell out specifically that black men could vote. It was nearly 50 years before the next amendment, number 16, was ratified. It allowed Congress to begin collecting income tax. Believe it or not, some people actually wanted this at one point, mostly the poor who hated the tariff. Senators used to be chosen by the state legislature, then the 17th Amendment was passed, so they were elected directly by the people. The 18th Amendment was prohibition. No longer could alcohol be produced, consumed, or sold. This amendment created bootleggers, and when the bootleggers started racing their cars, NASCAR. The 19th Amendment, at long last, gave women the right to vote, only 120 years after the country started. 
The 20th Amendment moved the start of the president's term from March to January, thus shortening the so-called lame duck period and making everything move a little more smoothly. The 21st Amendment repealed number 18 and allowed alcohol to be sold and produced and consumed once more. This ended the time of bootleggers, although NASCAR remained. Every president since George Washington had limited themselves to two terms or less, until FDR was elected to four. Congress responded by enacting the 22nd Amendment, legally limiting the president to two terms. Washington, D.C. residents' cries of taxation without representation were silenced when they were granted three electoral college votes with the 23rd Amendment. The 24th outlawed the poll tax, which discriminated against poor voters. The 25th Amendment clarified the procedure for vacancies in the presidency and vice presidency. The 26th Amendment lowered the voting age from 21 to 18. Pretty simple. And finally, 27. It made it illegal for Congress to raise its own pay without being re-elected first. And so, that's it. All 27 amendments, how they happened. Excessive fines. That's exactly uh, what we're victim. Any better? It made former slave citizens to quarter them or give them residence. The Fourth Amendment protects citizens from being searched or having their property taken illegally. It's also the reason cops on crime shows always complain about needing probable cause to get a warrant. The Fifth Amendment also contains a number of cop show references. It makes certain that persons cannot be held or put on trial without being charged with a crime. It allows those on trial to plead the Fifth or refuse to be a witness against themselves, otherwise known as the right to be silent. The Fifth also includes protection from being tried for the same crime twice and the right to life, liberty, and property unless taken by due process of law. Six gives the right to trial by jury to confront the accusing witness and to obtain a lawyer. Seven extends all those rights I just mentioned to civil or common cases. The Eighth Amendment protects against excessive fines as well as cruel and unusual punishments. The Ninth and Tenth Amendments usually go together and are possibly the most important. Nine makes it clear that even if a right is not listed in the Bill of Rights, that doesn't mean people don't have it. The Tenth takes all the power not specifically given to the federal government by the Constitution and gives it to the states and the people. Eleven prevents states from being sued by members of other states in the Supreme Court. Twelve is a very long and very dense amendment which describes a procedure when no president receives a majority of electoral votes. The House of Representatives would vote and each state would receive one vote. The Thirteenth Amendment was only unlucky if you owned slaves as they were legally freed. If you owned slaves, you also probably lived in the South, so fourteen wasn't any better. It made former slave citizens punish slaves for not giving them suffrage, made it so ex-Confederate politicians couldn't run for office, and made it clear that the U.S. would not be paying off Confederate war debts. Apparently, all that wasn't clear enough, though, so the 15th Amendment was required to spell out specifically that black men could vote. It was nearly 50 years before the next amendment, number 16, was ratified. It allowed Congress to begin collecting income tax. Believe it or not, some people actually wanted this at one point, mostly the poor who hated the tariff. Senators used to be chosen by the state legislature, then the 17th Amendment was passed, so they were elected directly by the people. The 18th Amendment was prohibition. No longer could alcohol be produced, consumed, or sold. This amendment created bootleggers, and when the bootleggers started racing their cars, NASCAR. The 19th Amendment, at long last, gave women the right to vote, only 120 years after the country started. The 20th Amendment moved the start of the president's term from March to January, thus shortening the so-called lame duck period and making everything move a little more smoothly. The 21st Amendment repealed number 18 and allowed alcohol to be sold and produced and consumed once more. This ended the time of bootleggers, although NASCAR remained. 
Every president since George Washington had limited themselves to two terms or less, until FDR was elected to four. Congress responded by enacting the 22nd Amendment, legally limiting the president to two terms. Washington, D.C. residents' cries of taxation without representation were silenced when they were granted three electoral college votes with the 23rd Amendment. The 24th outlawed the poll tax, which discriminated against poor voters. The 25th Amendment clarified the procedure for vacancies in the presidency and vice presidency. The 26th Amendment lowered the voting age from 21 to 18, pretty simple. And finally, 27. It made it illegal for Congress to raise its own pay without being re-elected first. And so, that's it. All 27 amendments, how they happened. Seven minutes and four minutes. Seventy-seven. Mm-hmm. When your house feels like hell and not heaven. You could tired. See what's going on with. Diaper Donald's in jail yet. We don't have any rights in America anymore.
United States Constitution. Hold on. On trial to plead the fifth or refuse to be a witness against themselves, otherwise known as the right to be silent. The fifth also includes protection from being tried for the same crime twice and the right to life, liberty, and property unless taken by due process of law. Six gives the right to trial by jury to confront the accusing witness and to obtain a lawyer. Seven extends all those rights I just mentioned to civil or common cases. The Eighth Amendment protects against excessive fines as well as cruel and unusual punishments. The Ninth and Tenth Amendments usually go together and are possibly the most important. Nine makes it clear that even if a right is not listed in the Bill of Rights, that doesn't mean people don't have it. The Tenth takes all the power not specifically given to the federal government by the Constitution and gives it to the states and the people. Eleven prevents states from being sued by members of other states in the Supreme Court. Twelve is a very long and very dense amendment which describes a procedure when no president receives a majority of electoral votes. The House of Representatives would vote and each state would receive one vote. The Thirteenth Amendment was only unlucky if you owned slaves as they were legally freed. If you owned slaves, you also probably lived in the South, so fourteen wasn't any better. It made former slave citizens punish slaves for not giving them suffrage, made it so ex-Confederate politicians couldn't run for office, and made it clear that the U.S. would not be paying off Confederate war debts. Apparently, all that wasn't clear enough, though, so the 15th Amendment was required to spell out specifically that black men could vote. It was nearly 50 years before the next amendment, number 16, was ratified. It allowed Congress to begin collecting income tax. Believe it or not, some people actually wanted this at one point, mostly the poor who hated the tariff. Senators used to be chosen by the state legislature, then the 17th Amendment was passed, so they were elected directly by the people. The 18th Amendment was prohibition. No longer could alcohol be produced, consumed, or sold. This amendment created bootleggers, and when the bootleggers started racing their cars, a NASCAR. The 19th Amendment, at long last, gave women the right to vote, only 120 years after the country started. The 20th Amendment moved the start of the president's term from March to January, thus shortening the so-called lame duck period and making everything move a little more smoothly. The 21st Amendment repealed number 18 and allowed alcohol to be sold and produced and consumed once more. This ended the time of bootleggers, although NASCAR remained. Every president since George Washington had limited themselves to two terms or less, until FDR was elected to four. Congress responded by enacting the 22nd Amendment, legally limiting the president to two terms. Washington, D.C. residents' cries of taxation without representation were silenced when they were granted three electoral college votes with the 23rd Amendment. The 24th outlawed the poll tax, which discriminated against poor voters. The 25th Amendment clarified the procedure for vacancies in the presidency and vice presidency. The 26th Amendment lowered the voting age from 21 to 18. Pretty simple. And finally, 27. It made it illegal for Congress to raise its own pay without being re-elected first. And so, that's it. All 27 amendments, how they happened. How about like getting rid of a uh, governor um, like DeSantis? That's something I wanted to look up. Should appeal.
Rhonda Santos allowed to sign in the middle of the night a 15-week, 12, was it 15-week or 12-week? She appealed Rhonda Santos's uh, unilateral decision to anoint himself presidential candidate, which is against Florida's laws. Why does he have a fucking standing army? Why was fuck this fuckface? Why was fuckface to Satan? Um, what was what was that other fucking shitty thing he did? Just saying. When your fat house feels like hell and not heaven. Eighty-seven, eighty-seven. Florida governors can um, sitting governors cannot run for president. Why does he have fucking standing army? Why does he have fucking standing army? When your house feels like hell and not heaven. How come it's not, uh... Bill Santos unilateral decision is fucking him. Fuck him. I'm trying to cut this down so I can tweet it.
sentence. I can't tweet all this shit. Fuck. Fascists. Solve the world in 15 seconds. Israel edition. Israel out of all occupied territories and give the land back to the people who were living there before. Welcome America and the world. Just to propose. <laughs> Good morning, Dr. Baker. little drama unfolding here. I've got two chickens who are kind of vying for this awesome spot of being my home chicken house chicken. And they're kind of eyeing each other. They're kind of eyeing each other. Like, what are you doing over there? You think you're doing? What do you think you're doing? That one's down on the ground. Getting, getting, getting kind of hectic. <laughs> uh oh. That was a little. Oh my gosh. <gasps> break get, uh, hey, hey, break it out. Get... <laughs> Good morning, Dr. Baker.